All right, I'd ask you to please open your Bibles to two places this morning. And if you would like to use the outline to follow along and fill it out as you go, please feel free to do so. Certainly not mandatory, but maybe it will help. We're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. And we're going to read in verse 18. And then the rest of our time will be in Daniel chapter 3. The, uh, the entire sermon will come from that chapter. But 1 Kings 19 will be our springboard to get into the sermon this morning. 1 Kings 19 and verse 18. As you can see on the paper and on the screen, if you're watching from home, this morning I am preaching a sermon called The Knee Unbended. The Knee Unbended. And I'd like to show you where I got that title from. It comes from this story in 1 Kings chapter 19. Uh, before we even read and introduce this story and this sermon, let's bow our heads together. Let's ask God to help us this morning. Father, we thank you uh, for the song that reminds us of the stand we all need to take. Lord, help us this morning as we are reminded from these stories not to bend the knee to the world not to bend the knee to the temptations that are all around us. But Father, we, we bow ourselves, our hearts, our knee unto You this morning. We ask in, 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 with hum, humility, God, we don't deserve the grace and mercy that You daily offer us, but we sure would appreciate Your time, Your presence, Your help. Speak to us this morning. Please fill me and give all of us ears to hear. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to preach. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The knee unbended. Where do we get this? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 19, we have the story of Elijah who has, in the chapter before, stood against 450 prophets of Baal. God turned them into a non-profit organization, wiped them out, and now... Jezebel is making some threats against Elijah's life and being worn out, a bit stressed out, overwhelmed by what he's just gone through, Elijah has hit rock bottom, finds himself in a cave and the Lord is trying to speak with him and Elijah makes the complaint, he says, God, I'm left alone. Nobody is standing with me. I'm the only one standing for you. And God speaks to him in verse 18 and says, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. You can see in the first part of that text where I took the name for the sermon this morning, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal. There were more faithful followers of Jehovah, the true God, than Elijah was aware of. And I think the same could be true today. It's very easy to look around at the state of Christianity and get a bit discouraged. Look around at the folks who profess to be Bible-believing Christians, and yet you see compromise. You see ignorance of the Bible and of God Himself by professing Christians, and you might get the idea that Christianity is on its way out. I'm the only one left standing, and, and I think we can take heart to know that 
even though there is compromise and there is corruption within the body of Christ and, and that's a shameful thing, there are still people all around the globe that have not bent the knee to the pressure of the world. They have not compromised their faithful and costly stand for Christ. All through the Bible, you find this. It is a consistent theme that God reveals Himself. He reveals truth. Somebody or a remnant, a small group, will stand for it, but the world will be against them. You see it with Noah, don't you? He was a preacher of righteousness. He built an ark, the Bible says, and in so doing, he condemned the world. There was a dividing line. He took a stand. You see it with Moses standing against Pharaoh and the multitudes of Egypt. You see it with Joshua. You see it with David, with Elijah and the story we've just read. If you know the background of the, of the men, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of these men had to take tremendous stands and it wasn't easy. They received horrible persecution, were reviled, were considered the outcast, the filth of the world. We see this carrying into the New Testament. That's, that's the language that the Apostle Paul used. We are the off-scouring of the world. He said in our generation, in our time, society considers us, Christianity, we are the scum of the world. And I think we see no greater example of this than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. When He came to the earth and made the claims that He made and then went all the way to the cross and even hanging there on Calvary's cross, people still walking by, making fun of Him, mocking Him, blaspheming Him, spitting in His direction. If you are the King, if you are the Son of God, come down and then we'll believe. The Bible says, being reviled, he reviled not again. And in so doing, Peter said, he becomes our example. It won't be too long. It won't be too long before persecution catches up with us. It won't be too long before the pressure of your peers will catch up with you personally. And you will feel that pressure to bow the knee to public opinion. Every generation of Christianity, every individual Christian who has committed their heart to Christ, at one point or another, your faith will be challenged. And I wouldn't be doing my job as a pastor if I didn't try to prepare you for this. So take your Bibles and come to Daniel chapter 3. I'd like to use this chapter this morning to do just that. I think you're familiar with the story itself. We're reading about in chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these, they usually call these guys the three Hebrew children. That might give you the wrong picture in your mind. They're not little kids by any means. They, they might be younger men. Uh, but three Hebrew children, that's a story, that's a, a title that was given to them by the history books. That's not a biblical idea. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have one chapter in the book of Daniel dedicated to their stand that they took for God. To the one time that shines through, there were other occasions that this was true, but in this chapter we're going to see that the knee was unbended, unbended. 
And there's several things I want to say about it. I'd like to walk you through the entire chapter, but time is not going to allow us to read every verse of it. So I'm just going to explain it part by part. As you can see, I've divided the chapter into five parts. In part number one, it's verses one down to seven if you want to mark it on your paper. King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has built an image, a massive golden image, three score cubits high, six uh, cubits broad. This is a massive, massively tall, taller than this building, this image, and it's covered in gold. We don't know exactly what the image looked like, if it was just a, a block type of shape or if it was a person's figure maybe dedicated to his dad or his grandfather. History doesn't even tell us for sure what this image was. Nebuchadnezzar, he built the image. If you can see in verse 1, it's three score cubits high. That's 60 cubits. 60 by 6. 60 by 6. I don't know if that number rings a bell for you. I just want to slip in the slight prophetical lesson that you might learn from this. But this is a historical story. But it teaches a prophetic truth about a soon coming king who will try to unite the world not only through politics but through religion. And he has a three... Three sixes in his number, 600, three score, and six. So Nebuchadnezzar is just one six off of that. We're getting close with this story. And by the way, you'll find that everything about this story lines up prophetically with what the book of Revelation says about the Antichrist and the worldwide persecution of people that will not follow him. In verses 2, 3, 4, and on down, Nebuchadnezzar makes a rule that when the music starts, everybody has to bow down. Forgive me. They have to fall down before this image and worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar has made. Just look with me at verse 7. I believe this verse sums it up nicely. Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. My first point is this. If we are going to achieve the knee that is unbended, we cannot start with, and here's your first point, a worship, <clears throat> sorry, a worship that is pretended. A worship that is pretended. Say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? Notice in this passage the people that are falling down to this image. I don't see anywhere in the passage that it says they understand what they're worshiping. They have no relationship with this image. It doesn't say that they love the gods to whom this image might be dedicated. They have no special allegiance to the spiritual deity behind this image. They're doing it because it's the popular thing to do. I find it interesting in the passage, there's lots of music, isn't there? But no preaching. There's lots of music. No preaching. This was the new thing to do. It was trending. It was popular. This shiny, beautiful, new statue. Wow, look at that. That's tremendous. Look what man has put together. 
What a tremendous show of his skill and his talent. Do we know anything about the image? Are we instructed as to what it means? Do we have a personal relationship, a sense of commitment or devotion to this image, to the God for whom it stands? No, I think it would be safe to say that this is an unknown God. How many of you remember the unknown God in Acts chapter 17? Remember that? The Athenians, it says that they had put together a series of statues, a series of altars, and one of them was dedicated to the unknown God whom they worshipped, not knowing what it was, who it was, what he or she or it stood for, but let's worship it anyway. This is a worship then that is pretended. The Bible says in the book of Acts about the Athenians, it says for all the Athenians and strangers that were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. If it's new and it's trendy and it's popular and everybody else is doing it, let's do it. Let's bend the knee. It was a mindless, heartless worship. They might have enjoyed the worship. The music might have been very entertaining. If you look at all the instruments that are listed out there, I'm sure that was a lecker band that they had put together. It must have been a tremendous show of human talent. But I can't see how any of these people put their heart and soul, their mind, into the worship of this unknown God. Here's the danger. If you don't know personally the God that you're worshiping, then you are in danger to be blown about with every wind of doctrine. As soon as the next new thing, the next popular thing, the next trendy thing comes along, it sounds good. And all I got to do is just bow down when the music starts. This isn't that difficult. It's not that great of a sacrifice. These new gods, these new images, they're not asking much of my time. Just a once-off, fall down, enjoy the meeting. I can do that. The winds of some new thing will blow you about one place to the next. As one preacher said, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for everything. If you don't know what you're standing for, if you just go by, well, this is new and popular and everyone else is doing it, then the knee will constantly bend to public opinion. The knee unbended cannot stand with a worship that is pretended. The knee unbended, it can't start there. A worship... I believe that is true and right. It needs to be well thought out. It needs to be something personal. It needs to be something genuine and sincere. Jesus said it like this. He says, The hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. I find that verse interesting, that the Father's looking for something. He's seeking people that will not mindlessly and heartlessly go through the motions, not just follow the trendy thing, but actually, actually from the heart, take that stand. This is how we're introduced to the story, a worship that is pretended. 
Look at the next part, verses 8 down to 18. Part 2. What is involved with the knee unbended? Part 2, a faith that is defended. Faith that is defended. In verses 8 on down, we find certain Chaldeans. That was just another way of referring to the Babylonian population. They made accusation against the Jews, specifically Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three young men had taken their stand. Their knees were unbended. And you can see in verse number 12 the accusation. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image whom, uh, which thou hast set up. The accusation is completely true. They are disregarding not only the king, but they said they are not serving your gods. Now this, this gets Nebuchadnezzar's fire going. You can see in verse 13, he was in a rage. He's upset. How dare these guys disrespect me and disrespect my gods. But because Nebuchadnezzar had just recently appointed those three young men to high positions of authority within his kingdom, he's going to extend a second chance to them. For you university students, it's a second op. They didn't pass the first test. They didn't bend the knee when the music started. They knew better. For them, worshiping God wasn't a mindless, heartless practice of doing what was popular. It was a well-thought-out, planned, prepared worship, and they're not going to go the way of the world on this. So Nebuchadnezzar goes to them in verse 14 and 15 and says, Guys, listen, is this true? Are you, are you trying to say that my gods are completely invalid? In chapter 2, it's fascinating, Nebuchadnezzar has admitted that the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Jews, was the Most High God. He was impressed with the God of Daniel because Daniel's God could look into the past and see what Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed and then explain to Daniel not only what the dream was that had occurred about two years before that, but the explanation of the dream and what it meant, the interpretation of it. Nebuchadnezzar was blown away by this. Your God is unlike any other God. And he rewarded Daniel and Daniel's friends accordingly. And now Nebuchadnezzar, knowing who these men were, says, okay, you have a great God, but are you trying to say that my gods aren't valid? Are you trying to say that I shouldn't worship and you shouldn't worship these Babylonian gods, these are the gods we've always worshipped. This is how we've always done it. This is our tradition. This is our culture. Are you trying to say we should stand against our culture? Whew. This is when it gets real. Because now you're not only going against these gods, but against the government, the king, against your countrymen, against your family. Are you trying to say that the way we've always done it is wrong and your faith must be defended? At the end of verse 15, you can see it here. He says, and who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Now see, he's already admitted that 
The God of the Hebrews is a great God, but he's, he's a great God in that he can interpret dreams. But can he get you out of, out of my hands? Because I'm a very powerful king. If I say throw him in the fire, you're going in the fire, booty. That's how it goes. And now their faith must be defended. In verse 16, I love this verse. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. In other words, we don't even have to think about what we're going to say. We don't have to plan it out and make sure that we get... We already know our, our minds are made up. Before you ever built an image, before you ever organized a band, before you ever made the decree that we had to bend the knee to this image, we had already decided on who we were going to worship. There was no choice. There is no other option in our minds. This matches perfectly with what Peter commanded us to do. Listen to this verse. 1 Peter 3 verse 15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always. Don't wait until you're in the middle of the fiery furnace. You need to decide now, right now, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you, of, uh, asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Somebody eventually will say, why are you taking this stand? Why do you not bend the knee to this tradition, to this other religion, to this teaching? Why is it you are the way you are? I've said it many times before and it still holds true today. You need to know why you believe what you believe. It is not enough when somebody says, why are you a Christian? To say, well, my mom and dad are Christians and they taught me about Christianity. So because I was raised in a Christian home, therefore, I am a Christian. That is not a satisfying answer and the knee will bend if that is what your faith is based upon. The knee will bend to the pressure of the public opinion. I'm not against the idea of ra being raised in a Christian home. Don't get me wrong. But here's what a proper Christian home will do. It will instruct that young person as to why he or she should individually make the choice to be a Christian. Does that make sense? The point is so good, I have background music to go with it. <laughs> in a Christian home, that child will be raised in an atmosphere where the gospel is naturally put forth. But each individual has to decide for him or herself, am I going to be a follower of Christ? And why? Why? Why am I taking this stand? Eventually the faith is going to be tested and it will need to be defended. You might find yourself in an ungodly work environment. Oh, the more I hear about the working environments that South Africans find themselves in, and it's not just this country, it's the world over. My son is now working in America. Oh, my goodness, the first job that he had, he said, Dad, I... This is all so new to me. 
I didn't know people actually talked about this stuff eight to ten hours straight in a day. How can they possibly say that many bad things for that many hours in a row? And when you do not follow along with that, eventually they're going to say, why are you different? And you got to be ready to say, this is why I'm different. And I'm not apologizing for it. I'm just telling you why I am the way that I am. You might find yourself in one of those quote-unquote tricky business deals where if we pay this guy on a Sunday afternoon under the table, then everything will go lekker lekker. But if we do it above board, signing it on a Monday afternoon when everybody can see it, the deal won't work. And you'll find yourself under this pressure. Oh, I've got to make a living in this as well. This is how we do it. But where, where are your Christian ethics? Where, are your, where is this biblical stance for this is how God expects me to run the business? The faith will be tested. It might be something, as, I want to say, as simple as, only because it probably happens more often, but it might be your friends planning a sinful night of pleasure, saying, hey, Hey, man. Hey, lady, come with us. Let's just have a good time like we've always done. You know what Peter said about this in 1 Peter chapter 4? He said, they will think it strange that you don't run with them to the same excess of riot. Why don't you party with us like you used to do? You've taken a stand. And it'll get a bit pressured. Family members might be expecting you to follow along with certain traditions. And you'll have to say, I'm sorry. I have now given my heart and my life to Christ and I'm following His teachings and I'm going to live the way He told me to. I'm sorry, Auntie. I can't do it the way you expect. And the faith will have to be defended. A faith defended is personal, well thought out, meditated upon, studied, and then practiced. That's a faith that can be defended. In verse 17, it says that they, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they carry on to say, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. That was, of course, the punishment for anyone who did not bend the knee. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. Do you see the faith that these young men are ready to answer? They didn't even have to think about it. They already had their answer in their heart. They had already taken this stand and made this commitment. If this is the way it's going to be, king, then our God is able to deliver us. Notice that they did not say our God will deliver us because they did not have a promise that God will chase away all persecution. They realized that it could be we are going to suffer for the stand we take. I'm not asking you to continuously dwell on that point. I don't think that's healthy. But it would do you well as a believer in Christ to think, Jesus said the servant is not above his master. The disciple is not above his Lord. Eventually, just like Jesus was persecuted for what he preached and what he did, the chance therefore stands that I might also receive a little bit of persecution. Now, what am I willing to stand for? These men said, God can get us out of this. Look at verse 18. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not 
serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. They had already determined in their heart, we're not going there. We're not going to take part in that corrupt business. We're, going to not, we're not going to take part with the ungodly work environment, with the temptation of a sinful uh, evening of pleasure. We're not going to just follow along mindlessly with family traditions. We're going to stand for Christ. And if it costs us everything, then it's a cost we're willing to pay. But King, just know one thing. We will not bend the knee. It's not going to happen. I don't know if you're familiar with the story behind the song that we sang this morning. I have decided to follow Jesus. Let me share it with you briefly. In the mid-1800s, the American Baptist Missionary Society began to send missionaries throughout the world. Several of them went to India. One missionary ended up in a far remote village of India and he led a, an Indian man to Christ by the name of Nokseng. Nokseng. Nokseng then preached the gospel to his wife and two sons and they also became believers. Nokseng, filled with joy of being saved and knowing God and having a personal relationship with Christ, began to preach to all of his neighbors there in the village and several dozens of the villagers begin to receive Christ. Obviously this was creating quite a stir in the village and the village chief summonsed Nok Seng to come and stand before him. Standing before the chief, Nok Seng was told, I'll give you a chance if you recant, if you deny the faith, then I will let you go. If you do not, you're going to face execution. And Nok Seng's response was the first verse of the song. He told the chief, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. With this, the chief brought forth two of his archers and said, shoot his sons. The archers, one arrow apiece, into the boys, and the boys lay quivering on the ground, the life slowly bleeding out of them. The chief again looked at Nokseng and he said, I'm giving you another chance. You can renounce your faith, or else you will lose your wife also. This would be the last remaining family member that he has. Nokseng looked at the chief and his response, and I'm using the hymn book, the version we have in there, his response was, though no one join me, still I will follow. No turning back. The chief has now threatened to take away anybody in his home that would follow along with him. And he said, you can take them all. Though no one join me, I'll still follow. The chief called forth another archer and shot the wife through. Furious now. With three people lay dying on the floor, the chief looked at Nok Seng, angry, filled with wrath, and he said, Deny your faith or die. This is your last warning. And Nok Seng began to sing 
And he said, the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back. And with that, the chief said, fire. And the last archer shot him through. This is a faith defended. Our God is able to deliver. But even if he doesn't get you out of that present fiery trial, the stand must still be made. The knee still must not bend. I have decided to follow Jesus and there is no turning back. I have sat down. I've counted the cost of my discipleship. I know what Christ is worth to me. No turning back. That's a faith defended. Notice in verses 19 to 22 is the next section. When your faith is defended, when you tell the people around you, this is why I am not going to go with you for a clean satardach. I'm not going to participate in the corrupt business practice. I'm not just going to follow along with unbiblical family traditions. I'm, I'm not going to just laugh at the dirty jokes and use the same language as my ungodly workmates. And this is why when you take the stand, the world is going to be offended. That's part three. A world that is Offended, So the knee that is unbended cannot start with a worship that is pretended. It will require a faith that is defended and it will result in a world that is offended. Verse 19, Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury and the form of his visage was, was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated, than it was known to be heated. Make that thing seven times hotter than normal. Then some of the king's strongest men, they bound Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, clothes and all, threw them into the fiery furnace. In verse 22, because the king's commandment was urgent, the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. I find it interesting when the world gets offended, it ends up hurting them more than the believers. They don't realize it, but the wrath of man never works the righteousness of God. They're only burning themselves up. Let me ask you this what was the crime that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego committed? What did they do wrong? Was it adultery? Was it something hideous as like murder? Did they kill someone? Could it have been insurrection, espionage, treason? What was the crime that they committed that was so bad that it infuriated the king that he not only wanted to execute them but to make a public example of them so that what they did would never happen again. Here was the crime that they were guilty of. They said there's only one true God and all of the gods you're worshiping aren't, aren't real gods. We'll never bend the knee to that. Here we stand. 
Folks, do you hear how similar that is to the profession we make? We make the claim that there's only one way to the Father, and that is Jesus Christ, that He is the way, the truth, and the life. And for you and I, we've seen it on billboards and coffee cups and Facebook posts and Instagram and Twitter. We've seen it so often, I think we grow numb to just how powerful that statement is. I am the way, and that means there's no other. This is why for 2,000 years the critics of Christianity have accused us of being very arrogant. Church history is filled with the apologetics of people trying to explain how Christianity can say the only way to God is through Jesus and no other religion will get you there. For you and I, that's not that offensive of a statement, but for the rest of the world, how dare you think that you have it figured out and no one else is right? That is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did to offend the king. We have the right God. You don't. The world is going to be offended at the stand that you take. I believe what's happened to the church in these last days is that we don't, we fear to offend anyone. So we water down the message. We say, listen, we think that Christ is the way, but if you have another way, your truth is as good as my truth and let's all just get along. This is leading directly into the end times one world religion where there is no more truth. Truth has become a fluid concept. It's part of the postmodern world in which we live. Relativism wins the day. Do you understand what that is? Relativism, that there are no absolutes. Truth always depends on how you feel in your circumstance. Strangely enough, within relativism, the only absolute is that there are no absolutes, which is so ironic. It's a self-defeating statement. You can't be sure of anything. Are you sure of that? Yes. Well, then you just shot yourself in your philosophical foot. (laughs) That, that, That cannot work. May I ask you to hold your place in Daniel 3? Just flip quickly with me to Matthew chapter 5. I'd like to reveal a small secret to you. I think for some of you, I know some of you have already figured this out. The crime of these three young men was that they would not fall down with the rest of society and participate in something that would displease the God they loved. Do you understand that it was considered a crime to do that? Isn't it wonderful in South Africa this morning that is not considered a crime? but the day might come. It may not be a crime as far as the high courts of South Africa are concerned, but I will say as far as society is concerned, it is a social crime to go against what the popular opinion is of the people around you. Matthew 5, here's my little secret I took you through a series of sermons, a series of lesson sermons about the Sermon on the Mount. Do you guys remember that? Especially while we were 
stuck at home in our lockdown situation, much of this was done on the live stream. We went verse by verse through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And as I finished, I thought, it had changed my life tremendously just going through that stuff, learning it over again, trying to apply everything that Jesus, not, not only my Savior, but my teacher, had told his disciples to do. It's a great exercise. As I finished up, the Lord put it on my heart. Why don't you go back through and preach a little bit more from the Sermon on the Mount? So if you've been following along closely, you will have noticed that for the past seven weeks, every sermon has come from verse 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Every sermon. Now, I preached it from a different context using a different story and a different set of verses, but you will have found each one of the Beatitudes. I slipped it into the sermon somewhere and made that particular Beatitude the theme of the sermon because I told you as we went through them, these virtues deserve their own sermons. God said, you said it, (laughs) so give each one its own sermon. So I have. And today we're talking about verse 10, 11, and 12. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely, For my sake, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. If you look at the list, starting in verse 3, humility, compassion, meekness, righteousness, mercy, purity, peacemaking, how could anybody possibly have an issue with those things? Why, why would those things upset the apple cart of society? We read about these wonderful virtues that I think anybody would appreciate, saved or lost. And then the last thing in the list, he says, and by the way, people are going to hate you for it. How can that be? You see, when, when we go out and do these things, live by these virtues, the world around us doesn't live by these standards. They're not striving to make these things real in their own lives. And you living this way in in their view, in their proximity, they're going to be offended. They will feel judged. Say, who do you think you are? Holier than thou. You think you're better than me? Are you judging me? And then to make it worse, it says that we do these things not just because they're right, although that is part of it. We do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Why are you like this? Because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and I want you to be a follower of Christ. Why is that? Because he's the only way to God. How dare you? Are you trying to say that this religion and that religion and all these billions of people are wrong? Yes. With all the love of my heart, yes. You see, Jesus goes on to say, if you're in Matthew 5, still in verse 13 and 14, we are the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. We're a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. We have to continue to be the preserving salt 
for an ever-corrupting society. We have to continue to be this shining light in a world that somehow manages to get darker. I don't know how you make dark darker, but they get darker. And we have to be that city that stands on the top of the hill and refuses to hide just because society down around us says, how dare you try to elevate yourself above us? Listen, as Christians, we're not better than anyone. We're better off. We're not better than anyone. We're simply better off. As soon as the light begins to shine, listen to what Jesus said about light. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. How could people not appreciate these wonderful virtues because they themselves are not practicing them? They know deep down that those things are right. They can feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit pricking their hearts. Truly, if the truth be said, their problem is not with you. The problem is within their own heart. Their, their heart is being pricked with conviction. And because you made them feel guilty by living the right kind of life and doing it for Jesus' sake, listen to what they'll do. They'll punish you for making them feel guilty. Now they feel bad, so they will hurl blasphemy. They will hurl, bad, call you bad names, speak evil of you, and accuse you of doing something wrong. Why? Because they feel accused. They feel condemned. So now they want to condemn you so that you feel just as bad as them. The world's going to be offended. It's not our intention. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't wake up that day and said, hey, let's go have fun. Let's go offend the king. It's not like they got some special excitement out of doing that but right is right. And they had to take a stand, no matter who it offended. We are the city set on the top of a hill. Can I ask you to set that, that hill, a specific hill, a hill called Calvary. That's where you want to climb that mountain, plant your flag there with Christ and say, I, I have no need to hide this about me. The world said, away with him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. We don't want this guy. I'll go stand with that guy that the world has thrown out. Before I move on to the next part, let me make this clear. The people of the world have the right to believe and behave as they please. Wouldn't you agree with that? They have that right. But that doesn't mean that what they believe and how they behave is right. I also have the right to take my stand. And, and here's, here's the thing about Christianity. People say it's arrogant. How dare you say you're the only right way? We, we're allowed to take that stand because we've looked at the evidence. We've seen what Jesus said. He backed it up with what he did. We know that he rose from the dead. See, we have a reason to believe what we believe. But even if somebody disagrees with us, let me make it clear, we still love them. We will not persecute them. We will not speak evil of them just because they don't agree with us. Disagreement is not disrespect. 
We still have to take that stand even though they're offended. Back in Daniel 3, the next part, part number 4. A knee that is unbended, it will lead to this, a fellowship that is augmented. Fellowship that is augmented. To augment is to build it up, to make it bigger, stronger. Verse 23, we read, And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonied and rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Nebuchadnezzar could recognize that in the midst of the fiery furnace that was lit by his anger, these three young Hebrew men, they have a visitor. Folks, there is nothing that will bring out the presence of God in your life like taking a costly stand for Him. When the world casts you out for Christ's sake, this is why we leap for joy in that day. Because the presence of God becomes so real to you in that moment. We find it over and over again in the New Testament. In John 9, we read one occasion of it where Jesus opens the eyes of a man who was born blind. You know what he got for that? His family said, we don't want to have anything to do with him. The synagogue said, how dare you think that you're smarter than us? Out, and they cast him out. And the Bible says that Jesus went to that man that had been cast out by his family and by his church. Jesus went to him and said, you know the Son of God? You want to follow him? You want to worship him? Who is he? You're looking at him. The personal relationship that that young man had that was blind and now I can see he didn't, he knew who healed him but he didn't know much about him but the relationship got stronger because that young man took a stand and said, listen, how he opened my eyes, I don't know but one thing I do know is I was blind, now I see. All I know is that man helped me in a way that no one else could ever help me. I didn't think anybody could ever do for me what that man did. He did it, no one else, so I'm with him. Isn't that true in your life that that man, Christ Jesus, did for you what no one else could ever do for you? How am I going to draw nigh unto God? Well, sometimes, right, when the world gets offended and you've taken that stand you're going to find that the presence of God, when no one else will touch you or come near you, God will. If you've stood for Him, God will. Can I use a, I want to say a, it's not a silly illustration. It may not be completely equivalent, but I think this will get the point across. You have a husband, you have a wife. And as long as they're together and chatting with other husbands and wives, the husband will compliment and say beautiful things about his wife. She's a great wife. She makes lekker pop. She's pretty. She smells good. She's everything. She's wonderlijk. I mean, so on and on, the compliments flow. But then as soon as that man 
is hanging out with a bunch of the other men and the wives are not present, wow, the story changes. Yo, my frau. Yo. Die pop, where? Yo. The Disney lacrony. And all of a sudden, the real opinion of that man's wife comes out. And maybe he's saying it just to impress his friends because they all talk evil of their wives when the wives aren't around. But whatever the reason is, this man is not standing up for his wife. Now, here's where I'm, I'm begging upon your imagination a little bit. Let's just pretend that there's CCTV in the room. You understand what I mean by that? Closed circuit television and, and everything that man is saying is being recorded. It's all of a sudden a lot more interesting, isn't it? And, no, no, I'm not done yet. It's recorded, but... The, the, the wife gets to sit down and watch the whole thing later. Okay, now play this through. She gets to hear everything that her man just said about her. Just in your own mind, please don't say it out loud. I'm afraid of the reactions. What type of fellowship do you think that that husband and wife are, is going to have moving forward? Absolutely none. <laughs> it's gonna, they might still be under the same roof, Right? Geographically, they might be close, but emotionally, they're not going to be close. And, and, and physically, they're not going to be close, right? There is now a barrier between them because when that man could have stood up for his wife, he didn't. How do you think it feels, right, for the Lord you may not recognize his manifested presence. You may not be able to visibly see him in the room, but CCTV is not something the Lord needs. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. He hears what you're saying. It's not as if God lives in a church building and he only hears what happens in here. When the rest of the world is around you, your friends, your classmates, your workmates, and you have a chance to stand and say something for the Lord that would make a difference. The Lord is behind the curtain, so to speak, listening, watching. Now just imagine, you take that stand in the presence of the wolves of the world. Later on, the Lord says, come here, I heard what you said about me. Man, that, it cost you some friends. It cost you a reputation. It cost you a job. But I really appreciate it. I could see the truth, the genuineness with which you said it. That really meant a lot. You can see if that husband, when he's around the other guys, if he would stand up for his wife and his wife saw that on the closed circuit television, can you imagine how much better their relationship would be? Oh, the fellowship would be intense after that. It's the same thing here. They find themselves in the fiery furnace and the fellowship with their Savior, with their God is now augmented. It's augmented. In the society in which we live, thank God we are rarely put in a position where we have to lay down our lives for the sake of Christ. But, but please understand 
There is more persecution in that way happening today than ever before in church history. We just don't see it. But let me tell you what you do stand to lose more than anything in South Africa is your reputation. That honor that you have from your peers. Therefore, I'd like to just put in one thought from the Apostle Paul. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul spends quite a bit of time explaining where he could build a case for a good reputation for himself. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. I was, I was a, a Jew of the Jews. According to the law, blameless. A Benjamite, circumcised the eighth day, Israelite of the Israelite. He was a big deal. You know what he said? Those things that were gained for me, I counted loss for Christ. He went on to say, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. How do we conform to his death? Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Paul said, I will be conformable unto his death. The world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. They're offended, and I'm taking a stand. The knee is unbended. And while the knee is unbended, and they hate me for it, I will enjoy the fellowship of his suffering. The fellowship will be augmented, which leads me to the last thing I want to say. Daniel 3, verse 26, to the end of the chapter. A knee that is unbended will eventually lead to a glory that is apprehended. A glory that is apprehended. Nebuchadnezzar is, of course, incredibly impressed with what he has seen. And he goes on to tell us in this closing portion of the chapter what a magnificent God these Hebrew young men have let's not be confused Nebuchadnezzar did not convert he did not become Jewish he did not say Jehovah is the only God and the Babylonian gods are nothing he didn't go that far but he did recognize that there was something very special and very different about this Jehovah God that the Jews have he recognized that. Can I say that the heathen around you and I will never see what's so special about our Savior if we bend the knee every time they put pressure on us? Every time something new and trendy and popular pops up, we just bend the knee to that. The world will never see what's so special about the God that we serve. I purposely did not finish my story earlier. I told you about Noxeng. Repent, recant rather, deny your faith or die. I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, the boys die. Recant or your wife dies, though no one join me, still I will follow, the wife dies. One last chance, recant or you die, the world behind me. The cross before me, no turning back. Down he goes. Shortly thereafter, 
the chief that ordered these four executions, he felt his rage turn into curiosity. The thought began to hit him. What could be so special about this man's God, about this Savior that he spoke of, that under such pressure he refused to bend the knee? Whatever God he's serving, whichever Savior he's speaking of, it has to be something so intimately special that I have to at least find out what's so great about it. He said, I want to taste of that faith. That village chief gave his heart to Christ. And immediately he could sense why Noxeng took the stand that he did. And when the people in that village saw the change in that chief's life, it wasn't too long after that the entire village converted to Christianity. They were able to apprehend the glory. They, they could finally understand to as much as a human can what's so great about this God that we have in Jesus Christ. How do we apprehend the glory? There, we see it in the unbended knee that the Savior we serve is so worth so worth it to us. We don't care what people think. We only seek to love and please and know Him more. At, in verse number 30, the chapter closes by saying, Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. They end up not persecuted but promoted. Folks, can I also remind you that one day the persecution that you faithfully endure for Christ You may not be promoted in this world as a result of it, but one day your promotion will come. Jesus said, He that confesses me before men, I'll confess him before my Father and before the angels. Oh, the day of your promotion. When the world puts you out and said, You're of no use to us, and Jesus brings you forth and says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. I'll give thee authority over ten cities, over five cities, and your promotion will come. The Apostle Paul said it so well. I've given you the verse on your paper. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us one day the glory will be apprehended you'll finally get a hold of it on this side of eternity I don't think we can fully appreciate how great of a savior we have but one day that glory will be apprehended I don't know if you're familiar with the song but we we sing it in, in our hymn books 505 in case any of you at home have a hymn book and want to look at it friends will be there I have loved long ago joy like a river around me will flow yet just a smile from my Savior I know will through the ages be glory for me 
Oh, that will be glory for me, glory for me, glory for me, when by His grace I shall look on His face. That will be glory, be glory for me. The knee unbended will allow you to have the glory apprehended. Let's all stand, if you would, please. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed. One way or another, our faith is continually tested. I believe the stand that you need to take begins with a worship that is not pretended. The Father seeks a very particular worshiper, somebody that does it in spirit and in truth. You need to know why you worship Him. Why do you love Him? You'll have to defend your faith. The world might be offended. And when they are, you'll feel that fellowship with God strengthened. And through that, God's greatness can be seen by those around you and eventually one day oh that will be glory for me the claim we make this morning that Christ is the only way to be saved the only way to have a relationship with God folks this is not something that it's not just a dogma that we created in a church building somewhere we take this from the very lips of Christ he said I am the door by me if any man enter in he shall be saved he said if you try to come in some other way you're a thief and a robber if he, he made an exclusive claim Say, isn't that arrogant? Well, he backed it up. He backed it up by going to the cross, being buried and rising again three days later. If you have never received Christ as your Savior, maybe you were raised in a Christian home, but you never made that personal decision, I'm offering you today that chance. Would you open your heart to Christ today and say, I get it now. I cannot be saved without without you, without your payment for my sins on the cross. I believe you're the only way to God. I want to taste that faith that other Christians are willing to die for. Oh, taste and see. Father, thank you this morning for your help, for your time with us. Thank you for the freedom the opportunity we have to 
meet together as a church to open up a Bible to preach the Word of God. Help us to take advantage of it while we can. And Lord, today we want to make this decision. We want to make up our minds now so we don't have to think about it when the pressure starts. You're worth it all. Oh God, we don't look forward to any pain or suffering. We don't seek the persecution. But we do want to stand for you. Give us courage, Lord. Help us because we know you're worth it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.